Hi everyone, Carissa here, the UFCVM communication intern and pre-vet student. Learning how to compartmentalize and grow your brain is essential in weed-out classes in undergrad, as well as the rigorous coursework during vet school. Today, Dr. Robert Osiboff, a pathologist of all trades, is going to shine a light on honing one's intellectual ability. Welcome to the Pre-Vet Podcast. I'm Alex Avellino, your tour guide on the journey to becoming a veterinarian. Listen along as we provide you with tips, tricks, and tales on applying to veterinary school. Welcome back to the Pre-Vet Podcast. I'm Alex Avellino, and today I'm really excited to talk to a clinical associate professor at the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine about intellectual ability. Dr. Osiboff, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. So let's first start before we dive into intellectual ability. Can you tell me undergrad, vet school, internships, residencies, what's your academic path look like? Uh, So it's a very long path. Um, I did my undergrad at Loyola University of Chicago. I did a combined DVM and PhD program at Cornell University. How long did that take? Uh, Seven years. Wow. So then I stayed on at Cornell University for two additional years as an anatomic pathology resident. Then I did one year at the Wildlife Conservation Society or Bronx Zoo in New York City as a senior anatomic pathology resident, one year at the Bronx Zoo Wildlife Conservation Society as a molecular pathology fellow, two years back at Cornell University as a wildlife pathology postdoctoral associate, and then I did one year um, at the University of Illinois Zoological Pathology Program in Chicago as a clinical assistant professor and started at UF five years ago um, to start a new service for the pathology of aquatic species, amphibians, and reptiles. First of all, props to being concise <laughs> with that resume. I've never heard someone able to list it so well. It's a little to me, you've done a lot, it sounds like you've done a yes. lot, kind of maybe mostly up in the north, kind of all over the place up there. For someone who has a position like you have now, do you think they need to do that many types of experiences? Is that traditional? It really entirely depends on what you want to do with your life. For me, there is not a day that goes by that I don't use every bit of my training. So I loved it, but it was a very long road, um, but it really enabled me to do what I really want. If I'm five years old, I come up to you on the street and I say, what, what's your job? What would you tell a five-year-old? Uh, that I'm a reptile veterinarian. I help sick lizards, snakes, and turtles. And, but are they ever alive or are they all dead? <laughs> so I am a pathologist, so most of what I deal with is dead. Um, but pathology is really important in the idea of herd medicine, which is when you have a large group of animals. And most often when we're talking about frogs or snakes, or it's a population of animals, whether they're wild or captive. So while I may be looking at one dead animal, I am helping all of the other animals that are alive. Um, and I have a lot of background with amphibian uh, medicine in particular. Um, so very rarely I have helped our zoo medicine service with some amphibian patients. Sure. And when you're looking at the animals that have passed away, are you looking at tissues, the full animal, or does it depend? It depends. I'd like to do all of it. That gives the best story, but sometimes it's just tissues. Yeah, wow. Okay, so you mentioned to me uh, on the way over here that you don't really love Florida weather. No. But you're here because why? So University of Florida has a very rich history as it relates to reptile medicine disease. Um, And the state of Florida is really a focal point for 
um, reptile and amphibian disease, emerging diseases, invasive species, and that is all the stuff that I find the most interesting. So that's what brought me to Florida. What reptiles get you up in the morning? Which ones are you like, this is why I'm here, this is what I live for? I, they're all of them. Literally. But it, it is, yeah. I mean, I get to see so many cool things. It, it's amazing. Coolest thing you've ever seen? Komodo dragon. But one that's on your bucket list that you're dying to see? Tuatara. Is that a word? Is that one word? <laughs> so, yeah, Tuatara is, um, there are five groups of reptiles, and everyone knows the big four. The snakes and the lizards is one group. Um, the crocodilians are another group. And then the turtles and the tortoises are a big, another group. And then you have, um, if you kind of group the snakes and the lizards together, I guess that makes four technically, um, you've got the tuataras, which are native to New Zealand. There's really only one species, but their own separate group of reptiles. Well, I'm gonna pray that you get to see one in your <laughs> lifetime. We are not here to talk about pathology and animals, although who knows, it might come up. We're here to talk about the intellectual ability section on the letters of rec for VEMCAS. My first question to you, have you written a letter for a pre-vet student to go to vet school yet? Yes. Do you recall the form that makes you fill out all of the scale of intellectual ability, ethics, judgment, interpersonal communications? Do you remember this form? I do not remember the form. Okay, so the form is on VEMCAS and you have to rank a student from excellent to poor on all these qualities, one of which is intellectual ability. I wanted to have you on to talk about it because you are a favorite professor of our students. So. Why don't you tell our guests what courses you teach at UF? Um, so the course that I interact most closely with our veterinary students with is general pathology. And so that is a course that um, the vet students have in the fall of their second year. Um, but I interact with vet students at different times in their training. I interact with vet students in um, the first, actually usually on the first and second day of vet school, I teach connective tissue histology mm. in the intro to histology course. Yeah. Histology can be a little boring. Um, and then other times during the first year, I will teach the histology of different organ systems. So I do the cardiovascular system, the musculoskeletal system, the digestive system, uh, and then a lot with the students in gen path in their second year. I also teach uh, a number of lectures in our reptile medicine and surgery course that usually is third year students taking it. Um, and then depending on the interests of the students, I also will interact with students in their fourth year when they're on clinics um, to spend some time doing reptile and fish and amphibian histology. So you're seeing them at every stage of the game in vet med, would you say that you identify with being a professor and like loving teaching the students? Is that part of who you are and, and like what likes lights you up? Yeah. I so you know it's um, I really enjoy teaching. I really enjoy teaching the stuff that I love, um, which is the reptile medicine stuff. Uh, and then there's the boring stuff, <laughs> which is um, general pathology is really uh, it's boring in many ways, but. It's tough for the students to get through, and I love teaching it because I can help them translate and understand all of the facts into what is going to make them better clinicians. And that's why I'm glad I asked you to talk about intellectual ability. Okay, I'm really glad that I was spot on for this episode. Okay, so I guess my first question to you is, if you were writing a letter for a pre-vet student to help them get to vet school, and you saw that you had to rank them on a scale of excellent to poor in intellectual ability. What would that mean to you as a reviewer? What kinds of things are you looking for for a successful veterinary school candidate when it comes to their intellectual ability? I think the um, 
the key word that I would relate to that is synthesis. And so students need to be able to take information from different places and put it together into one thought. So if you think about a lot as an undergraduate um, and you start a new course, your, at least for me, one of my biggest concerns was, is the final cumulative, right? Huh. You know, do I have to remember everything yeah. from the entire semester yeah. to then finish the class? And that, and then if you were lucky, you found out, no, it's not cumulative. You have three separate exams. And no, in your head, you're like, yes, that's exactly what I wanted. I don't need to, I just need to remember things for this one month period of time. And then it can go out the other sure. part of my mind. Yeah. In any sort, once you get to advanced training in your education, whether that be a master's degree, a PhD, or especially professional schools like vet school, you can't do that anymore. You have to be able to retain the information you've learned in class A and then apply it with things you've learned in class B and class C mm. to then get the answer you're going to need for your patients. And so while not every student who wants to go to vet school can do all of that from the very beginning, you can see that they're able to start connecting dots. And when you can connect dots, you know that that student has great potential as a clinician. Wow. Okay. So what I'm hearing you say is in undergrad, if you're able to prove to a professor, a, a PI, an employer that you're able to take big concepts, remember them, and then apply them to other concepts in your job, in your coursework, that's a good indicator that you're gonna have the intellectual ability you need to be successful in vet school. Absolutely. All right, now is there some examples of things that you think could, let's say I'm, I'm, a, I'm a veterinarian and I'm interacting with that student who's serving as my vet tech, what, do we have any examples of things that they could be doing as a vet tech to show their intellectual ability? Because these folks might not be seeing these students in the classroom. Um, I think that, uh, you know, I spent, you know, as most veterinary students do, I worked three years as a vet tech before starting vet school. Mm -hmm. And um, something I think you can easily do to show that intellectual ability is start to build that internal library of the cases that you've interacted with. So if you have a dog that's come in and it has you know, a presentation of renal disease, ask the veterinarian that you're working with, how does this case relate to the dog we saw two weeks ago? What is different about this? What, you know, how is the treatment going to be different? How are the, the, the tests different? It's little things like that that show that you are not just trying to get through the day, you are really learning and compiling that information and taking that information to make you um, a better veterinary technician and, and then hopefully someday a better veterinarian. I could not have said that better. <laughs> Let's talk grades. Okay. Do you think grades are equivalent or give um, indication to someone's intellectual ability or can there sometimes be a like um a like a strong difference between the GPA and someone's ability and their intellectual capabilities it's a big gray area right so i absolutely think that you can have incredible intellectual ability and not perform great in a lot of courses that make you memorize material and regurgitate information back totally. right i you know some of the smartest people i know never did any degree of advanced education. They have incredible intellectual ability. They, you know, some mechanics do this. 
Plumbers do this. Car- they're using that part of their brain all the time. The challenge with any sort of professional training, and particularly for veterinary medicine, we have to teach you so much that you need to be able to recall information and then do the synthesis part of intellectual ability. So I wish I could say grades don't matter, but in the grand scheme of things, they do matter a little bit. Um, I wish um, we could get rid of grades in vet school. I think that I could teach our veterinary students so much better if they weren't stressing about the question I'm going to ask them on the exam. Ooh, that's a drop the mic moment. Oh my gosh. I I get what you're saying because they really do stress. They're like, I have to get this A because I want an internship. I want a residency or they've identified with being smart. And in this country, being smart means A's. And so you're right. That's a huge burden for them. And they probably would learn more if it was pass fail. Okay, so what I heard you say, a 4.0 does not necessarily indicate intellectual ability. We need to be able to synthesize our information. We need to take what we have learned in January and be able to remember it for our cases in May. It just makes a good veterinarian. For you personally, how do you hone your intellectual ability muscles? Is there anything that you do to stay like intellectually well? Um, I am addicted to work. Oh dear. Um, so uh, I I love what I do. Um, and so I told you, I, I ran through that litany of things that I did to prepare me for my career, right? So I am a virologist. I am a molecular diagnostician. I am a pathologist and I'm a veterinarian. Yeah. Um, so every case I approach, I'm doing that all the time. I'm thinking, well, what viruses may be present? How do I test for those viruses? What samples should I ask the veterinarian for? I do all of these things. So Luckily for me, it is for me, it's a part of my every single day. Yeah. It also carries over, though, sometimes into not work time. I'm horrible watching TV because all I ever do is analyze the plot of TV shows and look for things that don't make sense. Like, oh, no. Yeah. I keep it to myself. That's got to be miserable. <laughs> okay, do you have an example of a TV show where you've recently done that? There's So, yes. Actually, I mean, it's almost every TV show. But I started watching There is a series on Hulu that is based off of a short story by Stephen King um, about a guy that is able to go back to the 1960s through a portal in a restaurant. And he's trying Wait, to... Wait, I love that book. Don't give it away. Are you going to ruin the show for me? I haven't me? finished it yet. I don't know how it ends. I'm only like on episode three. Okay. All right. It's so a great, I... It's a great book, by the way. We're talking about 11 63 Yes. Yeah. Okay. What's the show called? 11, 22, 63. I can't believe I All right, so go ahead. So what is it? Because it's like time travel? You have an issue with it? And no. I, well, the thing is, is that if you say you're going to go back to 1963 yep. or 1960 in the case of when sure. he goes back. Yeah, he needs to. Well, he, we won't tell We won't, tell we won't give why, it away. Okay. Um, everything you show me on that television screen needs to be, needs to be from 1960. It should uh-huh. not have come out in 1964. It should not have come out in 1967. Ooh. And so I, I I can't help myself from analyzing things that way. And has that been your whole life? Like as a kiddo, were you like that? Or did that become learned over time? Like, do you think some people just have an analytical brain? Like, when did that start? I think that people who are analytical are always like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it has gotten much worse in my age yeah. because, again, my work side of my brain has taken over so much of things is that that's how it's hard to shut that part of my brain off. Are you analyzing how things are going in this podcast right now? I, there's no time when I am not analyzing <laughs> everything. Okay. So now let me ask you this. 
if we're in agreement that some folks are analytical and that's who they are, and then you have some folks who maybe are not naturally like that, what kind of tips are we giving those people to get better about their analytical abilities and those intellectual abilities? What can they be doing if they don't really identify with, with being in that way? Yeah, I think, again, it's it's just like any exercise. You need to start to practice and train your brain. Um, and I was trying to think of things that people could do um, you know, just on the daily if they're not that type of person. So one thing I thought of, you know, for people that are not analytical, but they are into sports, yeah. right? When when you're playing sports, when you're playing a game of sport, uh, of either football or basketball or baseball, you're watching it on television, you're, you're not just living in the moment when you're playing sports. You are analyzing the defense, looking at, you know, for the football, then what's the defense schema? What plays are they running? What is the offense running? What for baseball? What is the pitcher going to, you're, you're thinking about all those things. So if you're sports minded, you easily can tap into that. Okay. If you're not sports minded, then even if you're more artistic, which I wish I was and I'm not, um, literature is a great way to go about. I mean, we, we talked about, you know, 11, 22, 63, I think that's it. Yes, you yes, know, yes. Um, when you read a book, a lot of times you can start to think, what is the plot of the book? Sure. Where is this going? Sure. Start to pull the little information that you get, you know, get from places. If you're into, you know, sculpture or art, that first stroke that you put on the, the, the canvas or the first part that you make with the clay is nowhere near what the final product is going to mm -hmm. be. Think about it step by step. How are you going to get from point A to point B to give you what you really want? And if you don't, if you're just a complete couch potato, <laughs> then just watch, you know, crime drama type stuff. There's a, there was and a- And like try to guess who done yeah, it? Who done There's a really funny show, or I thought it was funny, on, uh, I think it was also, no, it was on Netflix. It was called Murderville. Have you seen Murder? I sure have. Yep, that so was fine. Did it was you see? Okay. Did you see the Who Killed Santa episode? Yeah, I, I could turn it off. I got. I, got, uh, I, got I enjoyed bored, it. But per, uh, okay. okay, but tell them well, why they should watch it. It's uh, you know it's they it's a TV show where they bring in a couple celebrities. The celebrities have no idea of the plot whatsoever, and they present a crime to them, mm. and they drop little hints of what of who may have done it, and you need to follow the story and identify who. Did it. So totally. again, it's 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 collection and synthesis of data to get to an endpoint. Oh my God, you're you're mentioning so many things. Some of the ideas and topics I think I'm hearing are just like noticing what's going on around them, whatever activity that they're in, comprehension skills. So especially when reading, are you paying attention to the clues along the way to understand the plot, to guess what's going to happen next? Do we think that these students should do more like escape room type activities where they can test their ability to figure out what's going on? I, I think that's perfect. I have never done an escape room myself and I thought about mentioning an escape room in the podcast, but I didn't want to come across as the old millennial if escape rooms weren't a thing anymore. So if escape rooms are still a thing, then absolutely people can go for it. I just wasn't sure if it was still. Dr. Oz, let me tell you something right now. <laughs> Even if escape rooms were not a thing, our pre-vet podcast listeners are so dedicated to this profession. <laughs> they're going to find the one escape room. If a veterinarian tells them to do it, they're going to do it <laughs> okay. escape room. I, I, I'm also hearing you say that asking questions of their veterinarians, professors, mentors is a good thing. They yeah. need to be asking questions and finding out why something is going on, retaining that info, and then applying it later. They need to be asking, and I don't want to stress people out, but they need to be asking thoughtful, intelligent <laughs> questions. I agreed. Because 
uh, you know, as as a professor and I interact with undergraduate, you will have students that come to you that, you know, want to show that they are smart and they're interested and they want to do things, but they show that by fact dropping. So you know yeah. how some people name yeah, drop? I, oh boy, do I. Yeah. So there are fact droppers. They're like, oh, you know, this and this is this in this case. And it has nothing to do with what you're talking about whatsoever, mm-hmm. but someone just wants to show that they know something. And I, I do understand that. And, you know, it, it's hard sometimes as a undergraduate to try and show to a veterinarian or a professor or something that, you know, you can do those things. Mm-hmm. Just th- give it some thought. Chill out. Just Chill relax out. a little. Um, let me ask you this. So if you got someone who is the notorious fact dropper, if you got their packet and you were writing them a letter of rec, how would you rank their intellectual ability? If they had never shown you the, the things that we're talking about, those thoughtful questions, the taking information and applying it to others, it's just people who wrote memorization and word vomit on you. Are you ranking them lower in that section? Yeah. Ooh, interesting. Okay. So it is beneficial students to show intellectual ability in the ways that are quality versus maybe like quantity interactions, just having thoughtful, provoking conversations. It also takes emotional intelligence to form a relationship with someone to even have these conversations. Absolutely. It can't be some kind of surface relationship. You can't tell someone's intellectual ability just by meeting them a few times. Correct. Okay. Oh, I'm excited. We're going to go do an escape room is what I hear you (laughs) saying. By the end of this uh, semester, we're taking Dr. Oz to an escape room. Okay. These are students who want to go to vet school, but eventually they're going to graduate and become veterinarians. Do you think intellectual ability changes from vet school to the profession and how? Um, yes, and it it actually has to in most cases um, because when you were going through veterinary school, you are learning everything you need to know to graduate as a DVM and pass the NAVLE, right? Right. As DVM degrees stand now, when you have a DVM, you are able to practice on dogs and cats and horses and cows and maybe sheep, llama, you know, as, as we get farther away from the main species, less and less. But, you know, you need to know all of that. So your intellectual ability and your synthesis as a vet student is going to be very different than how you are going to develop as a clinician, because as you develop as a clinician, you are going to probably find an area where you are more focused. You know, very few people are going to go out as veterinarians and see that full range of species. Um, And you're going to probably start to develop some special areas of interest. Even as a general practitioner, there may be some things that you enjoy more than others. And so you are going to keep up on the field in that area with a little more detail. I So I am a veterinary pathologist who studies viruses and infections in frogs, snakes, turtles, and tortoises. Do you know how many lectures in vet school prepared me for my career? Oh, maybe three. Not even. I mean, <laughs> you know, it, it, there's no veterinary pathology of those species really doesn't. It, it's hard to, to teach it to even pathologists. Mm. So you may find that your career in veterinary medicine is something that you weren't even necessarily exposed to as a veterinary student. So because of that, you need to learn all new things. But the skills you learn as a veterinary student to put all of that material together are essential for your success as a clinician. Do you feel like you are also a good guest to talk about intellectual ability because 
of the field that you're in because it really couldn't have been taught to you. You had to go out and figure it out and find the opportunities versus maybe like small animal GP, which is predominantly a veterinary school education. Yeah. And, and it's also, you know, even pathology or infectious disease work in general, um, every case I approach is a mystery. Like I am, I have to find the answer. In GP work, a lot of cases will be a mystery, right? But you're also going to have a number of cases that are annual exams mm-hmm. or vaccines or but as a diagnostician in any of a number of fields in veterinary medicine you approach each case as a complete mystery and you need to find the answer oh i think i would hate that oh i see i love it see, it's I, perfect <laughs> i like waking up i like a routine i like knowing see to me do you know the concept of growth mindset versus fixed mindset i do not okay so fixed mindset is basically i like to do things that i am good at i know i will be successful in and i they like gold stars growth mindset is i like to be challenged i don't care if i haven't seen this before i do a hard puzzle i want the hardest puzzle next that sounds like your growth mindset that's that's very much describes what i like do you like to herp are you a herper I, what are your thoughts on herping? Maybe I, tell so, them what it is. So herping is um, you go out into the field and you look for free-ranging reptiles or amphibians in the field. Um, and I think that the idea of that is so much fun. And when I lived in New York, one of my favorite things to do in the spring was the first rain after snowfall, all of the salamanders come out from their brumation oh, or their cute. sleeping period, they climb out even under, over the snow and they go to their vernal pools to start getting ready for breeding. And I love to do that. I am kind of an embarrassment to reptile and amphibian people because I don't love field herping that much. I am not, I don't like the heat. I don't like the humidity. I like nice controlled scenarios. I, <laughs> I was able to do as part of my training, I got to go to Myanmar for a month and do work with Burmese star tortoises in the wild and all. And while it was a great experience, I I don't have a huge drive to do it again because I like control. I like to be under controlled settings. And there's parts of that herping and that being out in the wild that is just everything is coming at you from different directions. you just said you like a mystery and a challenge. Yeah, but I'm in control. I really (laughs) retweet. What's your, I don't know anything about astrological signs, but what is yours? I I think I'm an Aquarius. I don't really, I I don't don't know why I asked. It doesn't mean anything (laughs) to me. So if you're telling me that a a bunch of vet students asked you to go herping with them, would you go? I would would go. And we have a vet student. We have the Veterinary Society of Herpetology. uh, And they do, they go out herping. Um, I have been asked to go. I haven't gone yet. I promise I will, but New yeah. Year's resolution. Do you believe in New Year's resolutions? Uh, no. Yeah, I can't. Okay. Um, Dr. Oz, what's one thing that a pre-vet student could start doing tomorrow or today if they want to start working on their intellectual ability? I th- it's, it's, it's every little thing. Maybe you do a crossword puzzle. Maybe you do, what was that popular app, Wordle? Is okay, that... it's still popular. Okay. Wordle, Quirtle, and Statal, folks. Okay, all the doles. I yeah. think you could easily do, I mean, anything that's going to exercise your mind and make you go kind of into those recesses that you don't reach into all the time to pull things out, you are exercising that part of your brain, and that's going to really help you for vet school. What's something they could do a month from now? So something that's maybe not as easily to attain that's on their phone or in, in front of them. So um, I think a month from now is start especially if you are working in the clinic or you're seeing animals or you you know you know of, of cases 
is read up a little on those cases. Pull a primary literature article about what you are seeing. You are probably not going to understand 80% of what's in that article. But if you go through the article and highlight or underline the things you don't understand and slowly go through and start to look those things up, you don't need to become an expert, but you're starting to, to set those neural networks in place that are going to set you up for success in med school. Yes. And then what about a year from now, like a big ticket item where a year from now we'd like to see our intellectual ability improve and how did we get there? Um, well, I guess how fast you can get out of an escape room. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. So you start it and you just keep building up yeah. that quick speed. Just set goals for yeah. yourself. You yeah. know, I, maybe I, I think my month and my year um, are kind of tied. Yeah. But a year from now, pull out another paper that's mm -hmm. related to the paper you looked at one month in. Read it and see how much your knowledge has improved because yes. you've kind of started that and it, it you'll actually feel really good. You will feel like you have learned something and you're starting to get into the field of veterinary medicine before you're even in veterinary school. To me, an attainable goal would be once a month, read a paper, but every month rate on a scale of one to 10 how much you understand it. And That's then compare yeah. one from a year ago. Dr. Oz, any other advice, encouragement you'd like to give our pre-vet students as they, and a lot, you know, often I have a feeling a lot of vet students will also be listening to this one because they do enjoy who you are as a human. What advice do you have for everybody? Um, it's a long road. Um, you, you have to, uh, there's going to be a lot of roadblocks in the way. And um, one of the things that I didn't do well, and I want everyone else to do, is I only ever thought of my end goal as I was doing all of this, as undergrad in vet school. It was always someday I'm going to get to that place I want to be and everything is going to be great. Take a second now, stop and enjoy the things around you. Um, there, take enjoyment in the little things because it's a long road. And, you know, for some people, if you decide to go a path like me, it's just going to keep getting longer. And if you keep putting it off, you're going to end up regretting things. You are, it is all about the journey and not necessarily the destination. Um, so take enjoyment in the little things that you can while you're learning um, and make sure to take time for yourself and don't completely overdo it. 100% agree. Beware of a rival fallacy, thinking that once you get that goal, you've made it and you feel right because you're going to miss out on a lot of really, really good moments. Well, Dr. Oz, thanks so much for being in our hot box today. <laughs> you're very welcome. Folks, take this advice. Take your time to really start getting more serious about the conversations you're having with others, about how you're approaching problems, getting more into growth mindset, about getting excited about challenges. And then when you're talking to your professors, make sure you're not just dropping facts, but you're asking quality questions. I'm Alex Avellino, and we'll talk to you soon. Um, it's really hot in the booth that we're in right now, quite humid. Can you tell me uh, what kind of animal would be thriving in this kind of terrarium-like environment? <laughs> uh, most snakes would love this, yeah. some of the lizards. Guys, it's so know, hot yeah. in here. And we're both from New Jersey, so we're doing our best.